Hi, I'm Paul Ford. And Rich Ciotti. And we are your ever-faithful hosts of Track Changes, the official podcast of Postlate, a digital product studio in New York City. Rich, we got a lot to cover on the show today. We do, but before we get into the show, let's just mention that, you know, what, what does Postlight do, Paul? Tell me. Well, you walk in here and you say, hey, people, I need help. I need to build a big platform that tracks all sorts of things. I need to do some crazy e-commerce thing that I never thought about before. I need a mobile app that people can use to meditate. I need a new media website. I need so many things. All right, Paul, get a hold of yourself. My God. God, I need so Postlight. In fact, we need to calm down Let's a calm bit down. today. Yeah, we do. And what we need to do is sit down with a good friend who will tell us exactly how to sort of find our center. Yeah, let's do that. Let's talk to that friend. But before that, let's respond to a very interesting email that we received from a listener. Sounds great. Let's do it. We got a great question, and it was an ethics question. And... I talked to the person who sent it to us. Um, Let's call him Sam. Okay, Sam. So Sam sent us an email, and he said, uh, and I talked to him a little bit about the right way to phrase it because he was a little nervous about the details. So this listener, Sam, wrote to us, and he asked us to keep his identity secret, but he just described a situation where he was being asked to develop a potentially privacy violating internet product. Okay. Okay, he's a web slash mobile person, Mm -hmm. and he. Uh, was asked to do something at, that would keep track of people. Yes. And they wouldn't necessarily know they were being kept track of. And he didn't want to do it, but his boss wanted him to do it. And uh, he asked us three questions. And the three questions he asked were, how do your values guide the work you take on? When you have doubts about whether your clients value the same things you do, how do you raise concerns with them? And as someone with a little influence but no real decision-making power, how do I navigate the difference in values between my boss and me? So let's go back to that first one. How do your values, Rich, guide the work that you take on in a client service agency like Postlight? Well, the good news is the values rarely get tested. I don't think we're going to be approached by white supremacists who need a flagship Mobile app? You know, I'll give you an example. I have a friend who is a banner ad designer, and he's really uh, known for his political banner ads. Uh-huh. And he never gets approached by Republicans. He's the Democrats guy. Right. So, so I think that frames things a little bit. We're also in New York, so I think that frames things a little bit. And I think, you know, depending on geographically where you are and, and your network, your personal and professional network, probably dictates the kinds of things that are coming to the door. Now, what he's talking about is much more subtle. It's very specific, right? Like, yeah. for instance, we work for Goldman Sachs. It's on our website. Right. And a lot of people have issues with Goldman Sachs. And I think if you talked to me five years ago, I would have been like, ooh. Right. But the reality is we had a good contact there. The work was very straightforward. It yep. was about helping people do their trades. Right. And one of the things you figure out as time goes on is that giant organizations have a kind of like multiplicity of functions. Like I used to hate the New York Times as a good liberal. And one friend of mine, when I was working at Harper's Magazine, took me aside and said, listen. Why would you hate the New York Times? It's complicated. It goes back to Noam Chomsky. Don't worry about it. Just assume that there are parts of the New York Times that Fine. upset me. Okay. Fine. Fine. And that I felt were, were perpetrating really bad things in yeah. society. And a friend of mine took me aside when I was at Harper's Magazine, which is a very lefty pub. Mm-hmm. And he went, look, the Times contains multitudes. 
it's bigger than any one specific position. And so there's an element of that when you're dealing with these giant globe spanning enormous organizations where you go, which part am I dealing with? Okay. So that is, that's a way, and maybe that's a justification, but that's a way that I understand things. There are people who are working, there's big orgs, there are some things they do I disagree with, some things they they do. Well, there's something very specific. I mean, that's a fair thought process, right? Right. Fair rationale. The problem is, if you look at the case that's been put in front of us here, really what you're looking at is, this is a tool that is going to take in personal information or tracking information or whatever it may be without telling the user that it's doing it. So I think there's one of two ways to approach this. I think there are two paths to take, actually three paths to take. One is just be subservient, accept that you've been asked to do a job, a task and complete the task. Essentially, just bite the bullet and accept the difficult decision that you've decided to make, which is to do your job and to compromise your values. And, and look, by I the way, it's worth noting this is this individual's values. He yeah. is not representing necessarily any company's values no. or any agency's values. He has a particular set of values. These are his personal ethics. These that are have his been personal challenged. ethics, which I, I respect actually and acknowledge. Well, we run into situations. I mean, we're web development and app development, and there are things about accessibility, privacy, and so on. It's an ongoing conversation. Right. Uh, one that comes up a lot in our org is when is yeah. it appropriate to market to someone? Like when do you ask someone to give give you their email? We have these discussions all the time. They're ongoing. Yeah. But in this case, it's like, hey, we're going to get your info and you may not know we have it. Correct. Now, okay. look, here's – by the way, so here's a hard reality. The terms of service oftentimes will bury that they are going to get your info. Meaning right. if you read the Facebook terms of service – there are probably a few things in there that'll make you cringe. Yeah, the lawyers have an understanding of where these boundaries yeah, are. They, right? Oh, I com- we communicated it. You mm-hmm. accepted these terms as if some of the sort of quasi-contractual relationship took hold when you signed up Facebook, which is obviously ridiculous because nobody's reading those things. You know, it's true, though. As a, as a concerned citizen in today's modern world, one of the best things you could do if you're concerned about your digital identity yeah. is go back and read the terms of service because they're going to be very clear about the control they have over your life. Absolutely. They're boring. Absolutely. There was a leak recently, not recently, this past year, where it turns out that every single message you were sending on Facebook Messenger had geolocation data in it. Right. So you could actually, someone had actually built a tool that if you logged in, if you opt in with your Facebook account, it would trace your travels on a map. I, th- I remember that as Apple doing that. Maybe it was Facebook too. Oh, I may the, be mistaken. But the I reality think it was Facebook. It's all blurry, right? Like it's we don't all blurry. Even, here's the thing. The, the actual larger point there is that you and I don't even know who's violating our privacy. Correct. So it's out there. Now, the first thing they can do is accept it and just do the work. The second thing they can do is you put a case together that's actually a business case, which is, look, if this gets out, it's bad. Put aside your values and your ethics here. This is bad PR. Look at the larger ethical system out there. And if you go up against that, you can expect 100,000 angry tweets. And it's not a good scene, right? So that's path number two, which is be pragmatic, which really often works. So when you've got like as talking to a, a business stakeholder who is thinking about not getting in trouble mm-hmm. or not being the one who was at the wheel when things went down, they will often shy away from risks like this. Well, you know, this is the thing. Large organizations and small, 
your brand is kind of all you've got. People tend to think and talk about branding in these very positive terms, but I say, you know, social media and the internet in general is the greatest brand destruction mechanism yeah. that has ever existed. Correct. You can destroy a brand in in less time Correct. than you used. To, I mean, there's used to take like a whole sixty minutes interview. Correct. Now and it takes five minutes. So if you think about it, it's a brilliant bit of judo, right? Because cases that protect the brand yeah. and protect reputation are very business driven. Here's the because right? you could point to like, okay, look, here's my concern: is that Bruce Schneier will write about your security and problem, it takes off, and and that'll just be like on Twitter, and we'll become the test case for bad internet privacy. And then it's on nightly news or like nightmare scenario. That's your Don't worst. Do it. That'll destroy your business. Exactly. Like Yahoo right now is known as the privacy failure company. Correct. It's just leak after leak, disaster after disaster. It's destroying their value in the acquisition by Verizon. Marissa Mayer looks like she presides over something that's on fire. It's bad. It's yeah. very bad. So that's probably your most your most effective path. Well, because we're uh, talking about- to we're, not do this. We're not talking about your personal ethics, but the business ethics and the larger ethics around product. That's right. Those exist. I think people often forget that they do. If people knew about this situation and they're able to identify it, it's a genuine risk for your business. Exactly. It has done damage to organizations. Remember, Sony had root kits on its CDs for protection so you wouldn't be able to copy them, and it would screw up your whole computer. Right. It's a disaster. I still remember it years later as a reason why Sony can never be trusted. Right. It took 10 full years for people to be able to say Microsoft and have it mean something good. Yes. It took a long time to regain that goodwill. That's absolutely right. And Yahoo, as far as I can tell, is a dead brand. Like, it's going to get absorbed and its mail will go somewhere. And, I think that's right. But you can't just have every single account be compromised. Right. And so you, it's fear. And yeah. you're, you're essentially putting uh, fear forward and, and convincing the stakeholder that uh, you don't want this happening on your watch. The third path is to make your value-driven case. Make your ethical well, and this is the second question. Case. This person asks when you when you have doubts about whether your clients value the same things you do, how do you raise your concerns with them? This is tricky. This is really tricky. I think it, it speaks to the dynamic you have with your client. It speaks to who you are. I mean, let's and be when clear. you say you, I, I'm not talking about the individual, but the the, the entity, the, the the company that you work for. I the would firm say I have partnered up. I have profound ethical differences with almost every client that we have. Except that the product that we are developing in collaboration with that client does not embody those ethical differences. It embodies something that we share. Do you really have profound ethical differences I with would our say, clients? I would say, yeah, as I'm running down the list, Goldman Sachs, sure. I see things different than Goldman Sachs does. Well, that's why you're not Goldman We're Sachs. We're working with some extremely religious people in a religious community. I would say I see the world differently than they do. Okay, keep going. You know, um, we are working with a large political foundation. I think I probably see the world very similarly with them. Okay. Uh, some of the media organizations we work with, uh -huh. I'm critical of their overall structure, how they, you know, I like there's all sorts of stuff. As a person who's engaged, who's aware of things, who is uh, often gets back channel communication, I have a lot of awareness about how things are running and I can be really concerned about how things are going. Interesting. Okay. But that's been my entire career. I've always been somebody so, people come and talk to. And my entire career, including when I've worked for extremely do-gooder type of organizations, I've been aware that the ethical standards of the individuals often don't align with the overall organization. Okay. 
And so I think this is a constant ongoing puzzle. If you need everyone to be perfect, and if you need things to align with a set of ethics, you are probably not going to be doing that great of product work. It's complicated, it's driven by business, it's driven by revenue, and the set of goals and the set of things that people wanna do don't align with what's you know, sort of like orthodox, good ideological thinking about what progress is, right? They're not always representing progress as people share it. Well, agreed. Uh, I think, look, some of them are stark examples where right out of the gate, we're not going to do the work. If it was an organization, again, that was like pushing, you know, a, a ethically supremacist agenda or something well, I think like that, we're just not – we're going to send them home. We're going to say, and, look, thanks for I, calling. There's some veto power here. Like, I mean, I think I would – I think those – Anything that promoted firearms, I would be very – I'd have a hard time. Correct. So, yeah. I mean, those are, those are obvious. The less obvious ones – I mean, look, your question, you're bringing into question, um, you know, how banking systems work and how the media works. The media right. has worked the way it's worked for a long time. Right. I mean, the truth is, if you really followed your heart, Paul Ford, we would never have any business. I, I mean, don't that's, think that's true, though. I just I acknowledge that I compromise. I acknowledge everybody compromises. And I like to be in the middle of it. I'm a human being. There's no perfect world. Like if you if I drew out my utopia. It would be exhausting. I wouldn't want to live there. I wouldn't definitely want to. I wouldn't. I actually wouldn't accept business from clients that would come out of your utopia. Yeah, I mean, it would be horrible. It'd be so boring. Everything would be consensus driven. There'd be like a yeah. really nice, you know, digital platform, and everyone would blog. I mean, it would be yeah, terrible. It would be pretty boring. Yeah. No one wants Fair to enough. live there. I Fair lived enough. there briefly. Yeah, I was lonely and broke. Yeah, I think that's that's what's at play here. I think you do have some levers. I think what we described so far in terms of. You know the business goals of usually who was in front of you um, can probably drive some of the some of the decision making here. I think that's the the third question. There is I don't have a, you know this is a person without a lot of influence and no real decision making power. How do you navigate the different values between your boss and yourself? You clearly articulate them. You also have to be you have to know where your boundaries are. Are you going to quit about this? If you're not, if you're willing to go along but you really don't want to. You need to be kind of aware of that internally. Yeah, that's a bad scene. Yeah. You're just not going to be – you're going to be miserable. You're probably going to make others miserable because you're a, just not feeling it. It's very tricky in agencies too. If somebody doesn't want to work on something, they can get put on another client. And is that actually the ethical thing to do? Right. I, I don't know if we've ever had that happen. No, these are mostly hypothetical. That's why I'm glad somebody's writing about them because it's great for us to talk about. I mean, we're really we're really young, so yeah. we haven't had someone come up to us and say, "Look, I don't really like these people. Can you please not? I don't believe in what they're about. Put me." No, in we've had else. people say, "I can't work on this technology stack anymore." Right, um, which is about as religious as anything. Else. That's that's <laughs> very religious. No, look, I think that you know eventually we will face ethical issues, but the true thing is that we have a pretty strong filter. Um, you know, yeah. The gun rights lobby is not coming to Postlight to build the register your gun app. No. That's, there are other agencies that will do that for yeah. them. Yeah, and they're just, they already have, they have relationships with those agencies. Yes. They're not, they're not listening to this podcast. Part of that's the bubble. There's a filter bubble that we're all in, that we're all talking about and dealing with right now. Yeah. We're part of that. We're kind of on a tangent because we're a product shop. Right. So I think that, you know, our advice to this person is to simply declare your ethical position to your boss and know where your limits are. And if they're going to ask you to truly go beyond your limits, then you have a very hard decision to make. Here's what I think. There are things that are just universally ethically 
agreed upon. There's not going to be a lot of debate unless you're a sociopath. And there are things that are against the law. Um, like if something is going to like trick people into getting into their bank accounts and stealing their money or stealing information from people or even, frankly, taking information that people don't know you're getting. Well, the important uh, thing here, right? It's not cool. You're um, focusing on the behavior of the user and the things the product enables, not what the people who are creating or involved believe. Like we're, you're, that yeah. is where the ethics happen. They happen in the product. Like if somebody came to me and they wanted to build something really good and really interesting, but they were a, a huge supporter of Second Amendment rights in a way that I didn't agree with, I'd still want to work with them. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's irrelevant. Because to we're the work. focused on a thing together. It's a little bit like being a lawyer. It's a little bit like it is professional services. And and the minute you start to draw artificial lines, yeah. um, you block yourself off from both business and kind of in general opportunity and opportunity to learn. Right. The world's more complicated. It's not that it's, black and white. It's very so. complicated. And right. what I would hope is that if that conversation arose, I would just represent where I what I believed and they would represent what they believed. Or it, not. Yeah. I, I don't need to talk to them about what I believe, what I do on Sunday. Uh, it's a client. It's uh, tricky, though. You go out for drinks with clients. You talk to them. They yeah. have lives and they have you identities You can have pineapple juice, though. You don't have to have alcohol. They all like to drink. They do like to drink, don't they? Look, ethics anyway, are complicated. I good feedback for Sam. Yeah, and just it's always tricky because you need to figure out where your own boundaries are and you need to be sure that you're shipping good stuff. Well, that's... Universal. That's the baseline. And if this gets in the way of shipping good stuff, that's that part is really bad. Yes. All right. So thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Or whoever you may be. Whoever you may be. appreciate your email. Any emails, any questions you have, any ethical things you want us to walk down, yes. contact at postlight.com. Right. So that was a heavy-duty business discussion. We should talk with somebody who's... Going to take us elsewhere. Yeah. It's going to take us for a walk, actually. A long we... walk. Do you know what I'm talking about, Paul? I do. This is one of the more interesting thinkers and photographers and writers and designers and all sorts of things. A compound human being. A well-rounded person. Craig Maud, who is here in the studio with us today. Yeah. Craig, welcome. Welcome, Craig. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm great. What kind of name is Maud? Besides being three letters, it's very it's, SEO optimized. It's well, it's what it is. is it fits in a Unix uh, username really well. Yeah, that's eight, true. Eight characters, perfect. Oh, Tell so us you can history. be a, you could be a DOS file. You could be CraigMod.bat. I was. .exe. <laughs> .com. I was an S3M file once. Uh, excellent. Many people are going to say, as they listen to our podcast, to this particular podcast, who is CraigMod? Who is CraigMod? Who is CraigMod? Well, this is what I'm here to find out. Yeah. Well, I we have, have our no, own perspective. I want to. Yeah. That's okay. That's all. But I ever what want. is your LinkedIn paragraph? Oh God, whatever it is, it hasn't been updated. <laughs> we long, hear that a lot. Time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What is your uh, Twitter bio? Well, I think I'm just called a walking man now. A walking man. Yeah. That's like the that's James it. Taylor song. Yeah. That's, okay. Um, would you consider yourself a designer? When I need to be. A photographer. If necessary. A writer. On a good morning, maybe. You know, I've seen the term renaissance man tossed around, like describing people, usually when they're out in the room. I don't think he's a good fencer. He's probably not a good fencer. Again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> now, Craig, I've been exposed to Craig's probably writing for years. I didn't know. I didn't meet him for a long time. And it was 
writings about design, but with an interest, always found it to be an interesting perspective because it was always from, it was never in inside baseball. It was always from a, a macro view of design and culture and how it affects us and how we should think about it. I, I think also, Craig, you're, you're a participatory person. Like when you write something, it, it tends to be so that other people can get involved. Mm. Or yeah, it's it, a lot of times it's in response to something that I've put together and built, made, so other people can do the same thing. Yeah, so. reframing. I mean, Rich is saying renaissance, which I think put, puts a lot of pressure, but an interdisciplinary person for an interdisciplinary medium. I'm a kid of the 80s. Yeah. You know, I mean, when it's like... You what was had, your first computer? You had video games. Well, so my family, we like, we couldn't afford computers. Uh, Where did you grow up? I grew up in a little airplane engine factory town in Connecticut. Okay. So I didn't know Connecticut was full of yachts and people with pipes until I left Connecticut. Okay. And then I was I met all the other people that had left Connecticut. Where did you, this is in Connecticut? These so you, people? you had thought you were going to grow up and work on airplane engines. Yeah, I didn't have many archetypes, let's just say that, mm-hmm. for, for things outside of airplane yeah. engine, engine factories. And so we didn't have a computer. The first computer I used was, I think, I was in kindergarten. And it was at this time where even if you, you weren't in a private school, you were in like a normal sort of barely funded public school, there would sort of be a computer. There would always be one in the corner. There would be like one, I had that yeah, too. we had we a had, library. Yeah. We had one, and I just remember being totally fascinated by it. So I was, I was captivated by video games. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, okay, computer is a, even more interesting. Way oh, so you play would go video games. Like, video games on the computer. Or, yeah. or at an arcade with quarters. Or at, oh, yeah. Oh, I spent so many weekends at arcades with quarters. What were you good at? I was not very good at pinball. I feel like that was a. That's a whole other thing. Sure. I, mean, I think I was too tiny. Did you care about winning the game? I didn't care about I always. I would always go into the settings. I, I cared about not spending another quarter. Yeah, that was mm. it. It was like, how do I, how do I optimize how do I stretch as this much out? time in here as humanly possible? Yeah, yeah, I never stopped sucking, though. It was just quarter after quarter. I just remember I remember things like um, like the Tron video game was really, mm. even though it was a bad video game. It's a bad video game. It was bad, but you know, you had the booth and you had the light stick. It was an experience. It's a good designer's video game. <laughs> it no, it is. I mean, it's all it's all on a grid. Yep. Koi, <laughs> it's, it's actually Koivin's favorite. No kidding. Video game. That no makes kidding. sense. No, I don't know. Koi loves a grid. He does. Yeah. So you travel the world. Well, I try not to. You try not to. I try not to. <laughs> Every year I say, okay, today this this year we're not going to travel the world. What gets you? What puts the backpack on your back and gets you on the plane? Anything that's going to help me do better work or a really good collaboration. So why did you go to Virginia? Virginia was, I uh, I got a a writing fellowship to the Virginia Center for Creative Arts. Okay. So it was a month residency. One Uh, month, just a month. Just a month. Okay. You can Uh, write a lot in a month. You can do, I did six months of writing in that month. Yeah. Like six months of Oh, so it's intensive. Wait, what are you writing? It's a novel. Okay. So you're working on a novel. Five, it'll be five years old, December 21st. That's a normal age for novels, yeah. healthy kindergarten age. Yeah. yeah it's Wait, what there. does that mean? You've been working on it for five years? Yeah, it started five years ago. How close are you to getting it done? Every year, I think I'm done. Yeah, no one ever knows. Okay. Usually, yeah. usually it's when it's forced out of your hands by external pressures. Yeah. Or there becomes this sense of closure and regret. Or death. Yeah. Those are the things. Is it good? It's getting better. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I also can't believe that I'm still interested in it. Right. Yeah. You know, it's been that five, takes a lot. It's been five years, and I was, I was in Virginia, and I was just kind of like, I'm still excited to work on this thing. Mm-hmm. That was a revelation. 
and then to have a month to just go deep on it. Yeah. I, okay, cool. So you've got a novel going. I've seen your photography. It's very good, by the way. I know you consider yourself, I don't know, maybe you don't consider yourself a hobbyist or whatever. I mean, you're not. I don't want to. Yeah, no. You I mean, don't make a living as a photographer, I guess I would say. No, no, no definitely not. Right. No. But it's very, it's really good. Have you seen his photography? Yes. It's really good. So there's that that's happening. So wait, there, let's let's nail it down a couple things. Uh, you right? gotta so say this is uh, there are yeah. selfish motivations here because I pretty much want this guy's life and I'm just trying to probe into how he's pulling it off. Like he's, I'm I'm fortunate enough to be friends with Craig on Facebook, and usually it's my mom putting up paintings of the Virgin Mary or mm -hmm. videos of Pink Floyd, mm -hmm. and my brother complaining about something. It's and true. then Craig is just walking through the most beautiful place I've ever seen. Many of the things I've seen from Craig do involve a forest somewhere along the line. <laughs> just like a lot of forestry. Friends. Yeah. This is a new, I mean, this is pretty new. This is the last three years. Okay. Oh, okay. The last three years I've become forest man. Yeah, you're yeah. pretty serious about it. I mean, you're just yeah. in a forest a lot of the time. I'm never in a forest. I, you know, I mean, you just, you choose to be in the forest. I've optimized a lot of things around making sure I'm in a forest most of the time. Most of the time. Oh, I try to be. Interesting. I mean, Virginia was, it was, you know, it was an old plantation. Okay. I was on a farm. What is it about the forest? Is it the woodland creatures? It is, uh, it's the bear attacks. It's, it's the, the bear attacks? It's the dodging the bear attacks. Have Finding, you seen a bear? Seen a couple of bears. I was actually, I had a bear run in front of my car in, in Asheville. Okay. Uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Asheville, North Carolina. One of my favorite. Areas People of the world, love actually. Asheville, North Carolina. I love bears uh, do too. I love I love everything kind of around. I like Asheville. I think it's great. It's good on forests and well mountains. Yeah. So we, we were saying forests, but really it's mountains. Oh, uh, so the forest is just sort of the, yeah. It's the gateway. I don't gotta, know where you were. You got to deal with the forest. If you very want, beautiful. If you want to go to the mountains, unless yeah. unless you go to the Tibetan Plateau and then no it's forests. All mountains. Yeah, because the trees can't grow there. Now, have you been there? It's eight years ago eight and a half years ago i've been trying to get back okay it's tough it's just like china you got to yeah. deal with china to go to tibet and it means visas and it means getting shaken down if you're trying to you know get outside of laza it's a headache go to nepal if you want to go to the himalayas go to nepal a lot easier everyone is sort of chiller on a governmental level we and run into a very similar situation getting reservations at restaurants <laughs> Okay, no, wait. Here's okay. my question. How does one enter a forest? With a bear bell. Yeah, do you have you a, bear a bear bell? bell? Well, I didn't until two months ago. I bought my first bear bell. Okay, how big I was is a bear bell? I was resistant to What's bear bell. What's a bear bell? I was bell? totally a, resistant to it. What do you think it is? It's a bell that warns off bears. Is that what it is? Yeah, we have one in the I've office. I've just never heard the phrase before. A bear I bell. use it all the time with clients. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you have a bear bell. I got a bear. Well, it's it's a beautiful little design. How big object. is it? I wish I I wish I had it with me. First of all, it's made out of brass. The thing weighs a lot, which is you know antithetical to the ethos of the ultralight backpacker yeah. people. Whatever. I want a bear bell that I can take a beating. I want a, I want a bear bell that I can beat a bear with. Because bears don't like the sound of bells. Bears. Because they're little, no, little they're known, atheists. Little known fact. <laughs> little known fact. The only thing that scares a bear is a bell. Really? That's it. Nothing else in the world scares true? a bear. Wow. <clears throat> that is not true. Oh. Oh. Yeah, because I also, like, they're afraid of nuclear war and their children not growing up healthy. I mean, they right. have all the regular fears that, right. that, that people do. Right. Inflation. Gluten. Yeah. Gluten's uh, gluten. bad for bears. Keep them away. Keep them away um, from the gluten. No, th so the bear, but do you really want to know what it does? Yes. So 
the way you don't get murdered by a bear mm-hmm. is you let the bear know you're coming. That's it. Really? That's all. That's all you're doing. You're saying. Does the bear get out of the way, or does the bear go? Oh, he's coming. Let's make let's a- eat him. No, because yeah. the bears. Everyone's afraid of everything. Right. It's like it's frightening in the forest. The monkeys are amazing in the forest. Actually, oh, you've that's seen not in Asheville, in the- North Carolina. Yeah. In uh, in Nagano. Okay. We're back so in Japan. We're back in Japan. Yeah, mainly in Japan. There are monkeys in the forest. So many monkeys. That's so cool. And they There's just monkeys all over the place. I, f- so I had cool. a stare down with an alpha monkey the other day. Really? Full like this guy. Wait, are you in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn, or this where was, are we now? I can't keep track of where he is. I don't this think he can thing. either. This was, uh, this was on the on the uh, the old the Q Nakasendo, the old Nakasendo, and there was monkeys on this pass. It was misty. No one else was hiking. I was hiking in a typhoon. There were leeches everywhere. It was, I was covered in leeches. Just you sort of took off your pants. There was leeches in your pants. It was full on stand by me, just falling from the trees, and then so no one's on the path. And you're there's alone. A, there's a typhoon, and there's and you're in it. I'm in a typhoon. Well, the last time I tried to do it, there was a blizzard, and I just said, you know what? I'm gonna do this. Forget it. I'm gonna do this. Yeah. I'm gonna walk this walk. I wanted to walk this walk, and then there, you know, because no one's walking it, the monkeys think they got the thing to themselves. Yeah, and they come out. They're brazen. Yeah. And they're staring you down. Stare, the, just the alpha. Well, it sounds like you forgot yeah, your monkey belt. The mom, the mom <laughs> ran away. Um, my monkey horn. Yeah, monkey horn? Monkey horn. What so, scares monkeys? Uh, uh, white bread. Really? Just white, like, miracle. What's it called? Wonder bread. Not yeah. miracle whip. Miracle whip on wonder bread. You throw it at the monkeys. <laughs> That's a bad <laughs> scene. <laughs> they just go you crazy for it. anyone, you're pretty much going to deter. Nobody wants, I can't believe how much wonder bread I ate growing up. Yeah. Did you guys eat a lot of Wonder Bread? Wait, wait, did you? We're, like, we're so going on these tangents here. There's so much I want to talk about. I, I did eat a lot of Wonder Bread. It was really good. It was a cake like. We quality. didn't know better. But I, was, I, I grew up eating fried bologna on Wonder Bread. That was my main wow. source of protein. And okay, now, so there's a today. leap we're making here, Craig. Sounds like you you grew up in modest means. I need to understand how you're making a living now, such that you can go cl- walking through. Japanese forests. Is it a lottery? Uh, did you get some stock in a in a startup that just has taken care of things? You know, I think you did work for Flipboard at one point. Yeah, for fifteen months. For fifteen months, so that was a long stint that for was, you. That was really that was so long. That was, <laughs> but it was. But to be honest, to be fair though, that was. <laughs> we should pause was, and reflect on that. It one. was really fifteen months is pretty short. It's a re- but job. it was dense. It was okay, dense. Yeah, I mean, sure. that was. That was at least three years worth of stuff. Okay, so it was intense. It was, yeah. And that year was insane. I mean, everyone, uh, so almost everyone in my family died that year of sort of natural means. There wasn't like a plane crash. My goodness. And then the earthquake happened in Japan, the Fukushima uh, meltdown. Were you there? I I arrived in Tokyo on the day of the earthquake. (gasps) I was going back to pay taxes. Oh, boy. Pay taxes and then... Things yeah, the quake down. hit. Yeah. yeah. Wow. You know, let's hit pause because it doesn't sound like Craig found the resources he needed by stealing them from monkeys. Like at some point, it sounds like you went to college or you did something. Did you go to college? I did go to college. Okay. Yeah. Where where'd you go to college? I went to uh, UPenn in the States. Sure. The digital media design program. So it was like a fine arts and computer science degree. Oh, so okay. this guy who loves video games, is fascinated by computers. Yeah. He pursues it. Around the, and he uh, goes to UPenn and just goes deep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I took a year off and went to Japan when I was 19. That was how I got to Japan. Studied there intensively Japanese language, Japanese literature, theology, uh, government, stuff like that. 
and then fell in love with it. Sounds like well, it was just you know it was a it was a interesting deep hole to sure dig into. You it's know, it's world. like well, and also the language thing. You know, it's so much fun really learning another. I'd spent you know all of middle school learning quote unquote learning Spanish, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, unless you're in a place to deploy the knowledge, it's not really. Yeah. It's not really – it doesn't stick. So right. I got really addicted to that. And then when I graduated UPenn, I went back. I was like, all right, I just want to go back to Japan, do grad school, go deeper into Japanese language. And uh, ah. and I helped co-found a, a publishing company at the same time. In Japan. In Japan. And you're pretty early days digital media person. Yeah, this is – if we're – I mean, this is what – what did the, what is the time span? I what was – you know, I mean, hex editing BBS software since I was like – you know, 11 or whatever. That's really early days. It yeah. was, this yeah. This is pre-internet. It was fun. I wanted to, uh, you know, I, I mean, I was doing ANSI art with the ANSI art scene. I got my first job in Silicon Valley because of the guy who ran the ANSI art group that I was part of as like a 13-year-old. He was like five years older than me. His name was Mass Delusion. And uh, <laughs> I got an email from Mass Delusion asking if I wanted to be an intern at his digital media startup in, uh, I think it was in Santa Clara. That's a cool email to get. It is, although it, it does sort of show that if you start your network around age 11, it's, <laughs> it pays it, off. It, it, it pays does off. pay off. Like that's, <laughs> yeah. that's one of the tricky and confusing parts about our industry. So, and, and, I mean, to go back to my first computer, it, my neighbor got a computer. Mm. And I heard that my neighbor got a computer. And I started going over there almost every day. So he was divorced. He had a kid, but the wife got custody of the kid. And so he was kind of excited, you know, he was like excited to have this kid coming over. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was like kind of hanging out with him. And uh, he gave me keys to his place and like his security code. And then he ended up buying me my phone line. And so I could get onto Prodigy and I could get a shell account. Phone line in your parents' house? In his house. In his house? Yeah. So he was just like. So you're hanging in his house every day. I'm, I mean, I I kind of owe, I owe a lot to this guy. Interesting. And I never really thanked him. It made me really sad. To think about that, and then the other day I went to go look him up to go say thank you, and you know, you, you, I mean, he's the reason uh, I'm doing a lot of what I'm doing today. Because you, you know, he gave me that, and it turns out he passed away from a heart attack like seven years ago. Got it's it. kind of a bummer. That's sad. It truly happens. It but, truly happens. Okay, so wait, you're in grad school. Uh, you finished grad school. You stay in Japan after grad school. Stayed there. Yeah. Well, you started know, we, a publishing. We were company. doing. Yeah, we were doing the publishing company and. And it was now we're in the early 2000s? Early 2000s. Okay. What do you publish? Like, what kind of books? We were doing sort of translations of Japanese people in English. I was sort of the art director. I was just focused on making beautiful books. That was it. I was just, you know, working with Japanese printers and papermakers and artists to illustrate these things and just try to make the most beautiful. Most beautiful book as a physical object. Yeah, physical object. You know, we were pretentiously called them we were like literary objects or something like that interesting yeah. what was the name of the publishing company it's still around it's called chin music press but i haven't been involved for almost 10 years now okay yeah mm-hmm. so here are the prior like the priorities are making things yep being in a culture where making things that are very high quality is a valued concept yeah a place where you know craftsmanship is not just for people in williamsburg Right. Yeah. So it's in in fact not only just for people not only for people in Williamsburg, but like the government recognizes it. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, Jiro, the famous sushi guy, right? Su- Jiro dreams of sushi. Mm-hmm. I I went to photograph him in like 2000, 
2006 or 2007. Oh, cool. This is before he got Michelin stars. I went to go do it because he was just awarded a Living National Treasure Award. So the government recognized his sushi skills. It was that he was still in the same spot in the train station. He still same, had the same exact place. You know, and uh, have you eaten it? I did. Well, when I went to photograph it, I went at like two p.m. and he said, "Well, before we do, let's sit sit down. I'll feed you before we take some photos." Wow. So I got I had this private one-on-one Jiro sushi thing. But I'm like, you know, I'm 26 years old. I grew up eating fried bologna and, on Wonder Bread and sp- macaroni and cheese and spaghettios. Let's just say it was lost on my palate. Sure. <laughs> That's fine. You were there oh, to take pictures. He was waiting for a filet of fish. It was, yeah. uh, I, but it did, I ate things that I would never, I, I would have never ordered. Yeah. Have you gone back? No, you can't. It's, just, it's like, takes it's months, right? It's just such a pain. And yeah. he won't even remember me and his son was pretty grumpy and, mm-hmm. you know, I went a to. A lot of grumpiness. I went to, I went to go, well, his son. I would be grumpy too. His dad just doesn't give up. Yeah, yeah. He's been waiting for it's this. It's kind guy. of exa- you're also trying to live up to. It's like you're being Prince to, Charles. But his other son, you, you know, just want to be like you're trying to get to dad's love through your the way you're you know toasting good, the seaweed. Good soy sauce. Yeah. But you know the thing is, his middle son, total you know freedom. So he's got his own uh, place in Rapungi. I'd heard about yeah, this. Yeah, so it's like he was kind of like it was a blessing in disguise, sort of not being the oldest son. Snuck out and yeah, learned a lot. Didn't and have to spend the, two years making an egg. Well, and then right. well, the egg guy is now down the road here in, in uh, Tribeca. Right, there's a guy here. near West Village, I guess. Right. It's pretty good. Yeah. It's all a lot of drama. Okay. So, But crafts, yeah, uh, kind of interested in craftsmanship and, you know, respect. Sort of where respect for making good things is not just lip service. It's not just... You know, this kind of let's make an axe in the wood yeah. in Portland or something like that. What do you think when, when Americans get all excited about something like Jiro Dreams of Sushi? Is it exhausting? Are you like, oh, God, just shut up? Or are you like, all right, fine? You, you know, what's funny is when I went, to, I saw that movie in um, the IFC mm-hmm. over in West Village. And uh, they put the soundtrack for Ai Weiwei's Never Sorry right. on the Jiro movie. That sounds great. Because they didn't know Chinese wasn't Japanese. It just got a little mixed up. Oh, yeah. boy. But that actually sounds kind of... It was kind of... It was sort of like the Pink Floyd with, yeah. you know, Alice in Wonderland or one of those mashups. Yeah. And so it was like Wizard ten, of Oz ten minutes into Dark it. Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wizard of Oz, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh. So for you, it was just... You can also do it with uh, Alice in Wonderland. Oh, really? With the Mad Hatter and the, the Bunny Rabbit and the White You can rabbits. do it with a lot of things if in the right state of mind, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Just I was on I was on LSD when I went to see Jiro. Seriously? No. Oh no. I see he's got that straight. He's, he's pretty deadpan. Yeah. And there's like a Zen-like quality about him, so I can't read when he's joking. He's or not. playing with us. Okay. Um, <laughs> did any of this happen, <laughs> Greg? <laughs> I've I've actually I've never been to Japan. <laughs> yeah. That's the. <laughs> there is a lot going on with that Craig Mod. Yeah. So mm. much, in fact, that there's more. We're going to hit pause right here, and we'll come back to more Craig Mod next week. Yep. I don't even know what to say at this point. My, so Actually, you know, what want, you, know, you know what you may want to do? Go for a walk in the woods? Take a walk. Yeah. And just take in what you just heard. I need a bear bell. <sighs> well, let's rejoin Craig next week mm-hmm. here on Track Changes, the official podcast of Postlight, a digital product studio in New York City. I'm Paul Ford. I'm Rich Ziotti. Anyway, contact at postlight.com. You know how to get in touch with us. Tell us all your worries and troubles. Hire us for building your big complex web apps, platforms, and mobile applications. 
We'd love to talk to you soon. Anything you need, let us know and give us five stars on iTunes. That covers it, Paul. Contact at postlight.com. Have a great week. Bye, everybody.